news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. All right, everybody. Welcome to The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. This is your co-host, Carly Waters from PS Literary. I'm doing my first bonus guest episode, and I thought a really fun topic would be film and TV rights, book to film, book to TV adaptations. And so I tapped the shoulders of a couple of my friends and colleagues in the industry to talk with us about this. So I want to welcome Dana Murphy from the book group and Addison Duffy from UTA. For everybody listening, Dana and I co-hosted a spring mentorship webinar series. So Dana and I used to spend a lot of time together on Zoom. So I'm, I'm glad to see your face again here. And Addison, you're out in LA and I see you maybe like once a year, once every other year. And now I don't know when I'll see you again. So uh, my plan for our chat today, so I prepared some questions for us. And then I also put the call out on Twitter for some authors and followers that have some questions too. So I have a good little, you know, a good little selection of questions. And, you know, I've been in the business maybe 12 years now. I haven't counted in a while, 12 years now. And I feel like recently, and it could just be me kind of growing in my career, but the interest in IP, I feel like has changed dramatically in the past five years, I would say probably of it being more IP led. And so do either of you want to speak to that? I mean, I've noticed that from an outsider, you guys being maybe more insider, have you noticed a change to things being more IP led? Yeah, IP is just intellectual property. So in the case of film and TV, it 
primarily refers to the book you as the author have written being optioned, which I'm sure we'll get into what that means, to be adapted. So the IP is the original intellectual property from which any number of derivative dramatic adaptations may be made. So yeah, so the interest in IP has really, at least in my eyes, increased a lot. I feel like when I was, you know, interning and working in film and TV a decade ago, there wasn't as much hunger for it. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. Um, Some straightforward, some really complex and nuanced. But back then it felt like you would, your book may get adapted if it was a really big hit. It may get adapted if it was a real, like particularly cinematic project. Or it may get optioned. If a studio had a movie in development that was about, I don't know, a talking cat and you wrote a book about a talking cat, they may not necessarily option your work to make the movie. They may option your work so that there is not another movie made on this topic because optioning means that they would control those rights for a period of time. More things are getting made from books and more things are getting adapted than ever before. And I think to the old time studios calling and saying, hey, what are the numbers? How many books sold? We don't get that question anymore. And if we do, it's from someone that probably doesn't really fully know what they're doing because that doesn't matter anymore. And so the the exciting part too, to add on to that is IP is so important. And all of these studios are now in the last, I mean, I even want to say like two months or so, Mm -hmm. there are executives within these studios that are now only IP people, Netflix and Universal and, you know, Amazon, like there are people focusing in on these positions, ABC and Disney, and, and they're now kind of centering IP and then going out to all of their different networks and saying, you know, this is what makes sense for you guys. And that's a huge change and exciting thing for us because it just shows how important IP is to the studios. And then the other thing is you could be a debut novelist. You could write your first article. You could have, you don't have to have the success behind you to prove that you're going to make a fantastic TV show or movie out of your Mm -hmm. material. Everyone wants good material and new ideas and fresh voices. And so one of the bigger deals that I closed this year was for someone that had a debut novel and her publishing deal hadn't even been announced, you know, and, and these competitive offers, they didn't care. They just loved the writing. Yeah. I love that. And all the writers will be very glad to hear that. It doesn't matter about sales units anymore. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think we're, we're seeing more and more backlist projects get sold mm-hmm. and adapted. We're seeing more and more projects sold prior to hitting the market or prior to quote unquote proving themselves in the market because it has a value in and of itself in the film and TV world now in a way that I don't think IP had that same kind of weighted value, even like you said, Carly, like five years ago. Totally. And so um, because we have fellow agent here in the book world, and then we have our book to film agent. Um, so maybe we'll do, we'll start with Dana talking us through what the kind of author process in terms of like getting something ready to send to somebody like Addison. And then Addison can talk about what happens when it gets handed over to Addison and how Addison runs with it. So we'll do a little, uh, a little relay race uh, conversation here. So Dana, how would you approach getting something ready to shop for film and TV? Yeah, sure. I mean, as with everything in publishing, it depends on the book and on the project. Like the right time for any given novel might not be the right time for another one and what stage in the publication process as well. But I really love working with my film co-agents because the submission process on that side of the fence is so, so different. And I'm always thankful I have them to explain it to my authors because it works just the pace is very different than on, on the book side of things, I think in a pretty cool, fluid way. But so when I'm preparing a project to share with a film agent. Another thing that depends is how 
how your agency handles film rights broadly, right? So some agencies will have an in-house person on their staff who handles film rights for all books that that agency works on. Our model is we work with co-agents like Addison at, I guess, primarily you would call it a talent agency, but there are book to film departments. There are literary departments in those agencies as well. But sort of the big monolith acronym, CIAs, UTAs, WMEs, and then many others from there, Paradigm, Anonymous Management. We work with a number of different agents depending on the book. So what I love about our model is that I'm able to think about the network of agents I have relationships with and say, well, which one is going to be the best one for this project? In the same way that an author queries agents and is evaluating which which agent would be the best fit for the project and for the author for being in partnership and for walking that author through the process in the in the same way we walk through the book process. So those are the two primary forms, I think, is having someone on staff versus working uh, collaboratively with co-agents at whatever number of agencies you have relationships with. And that's the model that I work under. So for me, when I'm preparing, the first thing I'm thinking about is, you know, kind of who I think would be a good fit for this book, who I think would, who works in the spaces, who has the relationships that we would need to get it to the right people, who I trust, <laughs> who I like, who I want to work with, and who I have relationships with. So I kind of like roll through that mental Rolodex. And I generally like to go to a couple of people at once, but not a huge long list and kind of treating it as a rolling process because there are many opportunities to sell film rights. It's another thing that, you know, both Addison and I can speak to, but it doesn't always happen at the same time for every book. Arguably never happens at the same time for every book. There's sort of like different goalposts along the way um, that it may be more or less likely to sell film right. But I have seen them sold at every possible moment for any given book. That's just to say it's like part of finding the right agent to work with is also finding the right moment for that book. Some book, if you have a really big, buzzy sale in the book world, that can translate over. And therefore, you might be able to sell film and TV rights, like Addison was saying, long before the book actually hits shelves. There's also opportunity throughout the publication process if you have really great folks coming in. And if you have really great publicity lining up around publication, it's a great time. And so that's also sort of the negotiation I'm doing in my mind is like, where is this given book at in the process? Where are we going to be most inclined and supported in translating it over to the film and TV world? When would it be the best time to submit this book for that world? And that's how I'm putting together the timeline. But primarily, I'm connecting with my film and TV co-agents that I think would be a good fit. I'm giving them a chance to read. We're talking about it and coming to a, a hand shake partnership the author would talk to the agent that's interested to make sure that's a fit uh, always because we want them to be communicating and have a relationship in the same way that I have a relationship with the author and then kind of go from there and then the whomever my co-agent is takes over from there and then I jump in I read (laughs) I start you know I'm submitted books throughout the week and read every single one that's sent to me and and uh, you know I can speak to at least UTA are very particular and very thoughtful about the things that we choose to raise our hand for because we won't ever and don't ever and Carly has seen this too like we just don't give up on a book if it's something that sells right away and doesn't move forward we want to be able to go through the process again and you know if it doesn't get to screen five years down the line it's come up out of option two years you know we want to be as excited to take it back out into the marketplace and then for future books and and backlist books and we want to be there for the whole of an author's career so we're very thoughtful and and, and selective about the books that we do take on but it really starts from reading and falling in love with the material 
material. And then from there, speaking with the author and talking through what their hopes and dreams are. I think it's really important to feel like, especially because it's the, you know, entertainment is the wild, wild west for a lot of authors. It's a confusing landscape and there's so many players and there's so many quote unquote producers that say they're producers, but maybe not really producers. And so you have to kind of have someone to help push through the the real players. And so, you know, I want to always make sure that an author feels like they understand the process and they have a voice and an opportunity to say, I watched blank show last week. I have no idea, you know, who directed it or who wrote it, but I really loved it. I feel like this could be right for my material and being able to get it in the hands of those people. I'd say 90, 95% of the time authors don't even necessarily have that detailed of an input, but if they do, and, and there are some people out there who are excited about, about being a part of this journey that they get to be, and they have a strong voice in it. So that initial call with an author is talking through anything that they hope for in the adaptation process, how involved they want to be. A lot of people want to adapt their material and that's great. And we have a conversation there and a lot of people don't and um, making sure that there's some clarity on that first call about what the expectations are. And then talking through some of the creative elements on the film and TV side that, you know, a co-agent feels like it would be a good fit for. And I think for authors on that initial call with a a film and TV co-agent, you can also get a sense of how that agent is thinking about your material. And you might not know the names that they're saying, but you know, hopefully there are some movies or TV shows that they're talking about in conjunction with your material that you're excited about or have clarity that that might not be how you want it positioned in the marketplace and to either be able to have an open conversation there or feeling like that co-agent might not be the right fit for you and being able to really get a sense of each other on that first call. And then a lot of times people ask for, or a co-agent will already offer up a submission list and maybe they email over the names that, you know, were talked about on that phone call so that you can sit with them for a few days and, and look through the list and maybe watch a few of the TV shows or movies that they talked about on that phone call so that you can see how your piece might be adapted. And, but ultimately, you know, making sure that that co-agent has a passion and an excitement for your material because it's a long process. Dana mentioned that how the timing is different and it it takes a bit of time for, it shouldn't take too much time for a film and TV co-agent to read, but it can take a little bit of time for a producer or a writer or an actor or director to read material. And so, you know, you're, you're getting into a relationship for years on end and making sure that you're finding the right person is really important. Great, thank you. So if a writer does want to adapt their work, what are some things that they should be thinking about or preparing for, or what would you kind of hope that they would know? My biggest thing, because I do, I personally love reading early on in the process. There's backlists, books that I've sold, you know, over and over again, but there's also an opportunity to read early on. And I might be reading a proposal or a, you know, a a first draft of something. And when an author starts to talk about wanting to adapt, my biggest thing is don't think about that while you're writing your book. Don't think about that while you're working on your material because we will figure it out. You do not need to be writing a book with an eye towards writing a movie. They are so different. The process is different. If you're writing and and adapting for television, you're going to be in a room with people and everyone's going to be putting their input in for that one script. And so 
I think the main thing is focusing on what you want your book to be. There are so many pieces of material, articles, podcasts, books that have been adapted in a really clear way from the book to the screen and it stayed really true to the material and they had no anticipation of that becoming a movie um, in the future or a TV show. So I think the biggest thing that I always say is if it's early on in the, in the writing process, be, we'll be excited. We're here when you're ready to adapt it, but focus on the book, write it. The, the rest of the adaptation part will come. And I also always ask my authors, and I think every author going through this process should ask themselves is like, look inside and ask why you would want to adapt this work. Because like Addison was saying, it's a different form completely. And writing a book is a very, very different than writing a script, right? The form, what it demands to be good. It's a, it's a different set of skills you'll be building and you can build it. And, and I have seen really incredible adaptation work come out of um, authors that had been book writers primarily before that. I have seen people build incredible careers in the film and TV world, pivoted off of the fact that they wrote a book first, adopted it. And then that sort of became what was the best fit for them writing wise, or they're doing both in writing books and work in rooms. But I think there's kind of, in my mind, usually two pretty clear paths of why an author may want to adapt their own work. The one that's worth running down is if you've been interested in this world for a long time, if you know a bit about the craft, if you're, or if you don't, and but you simply really have a enthusiasm and affection and interest in the world of film and TV as a business and what it would mean to be a working writer in that industry. If you have a real interest in the form of script writing, whether that be feature or TV, great, run down that path. That's a really, really good reason. And there's a lot of forms it can take. It may, it may take the form of you adapting it yourself or it may take the form of you being in a writer's room, of you getting linked up with a more experienced screenwriter or a more experienced showrunner to help sort of like mentor you through this first feature script or this first TV writer's room. That's not to say that adapting it yourself means like taking off the training wheels and chucking you into a lake. Like that's a mixed metaphor, but it is also not usually how it works. You'll have the support you need to learn how to do this work. The path that I caution authors against is considering adapting your work because you want to con maintain control over what the thing is. And what I always say is like, your book is the thing. The film and TV adaptation is not the thing. It is a completely different thing. I usually refer to it as like the cousin of your book. It's not even close enough to be a sibling. It's definitely not the same thing as your book. It is a couple of beats away from you in the family tree while still being connected familially. But I, I think I've watched a lot of authors go through this process that have found it really difficult and really painful and really tough because the, their understanding or their misunderstanding going into it was, well, if I'm the writer of the adaptation, I can make sure this stays as quote unquote true, whatever that may mean to what it was as a book form. And that's usually not how it works out for a lot of reasons. Like it's not how it works out because sometimes you need to make significant changes for something that is a 350 page book to work in a 60 page, 80 page script for it to work or over the course of a TV show, right? Like the things that are forward facing and important in a novel may not work in a direct translation. And you want to be working with people that you trust and will, li and, and will listen to when you're trying to figure out and negotiate what is best for this form. And it's just, it is truly a translation in a way. And I think approaching the work from that perspective is the happiest path along the way. Because your ownership over something when you're writing film and TV is also very different than books. That's something that I always emphasize. When you author a book, 
your name is on the cover, it's kind of, it's yours and you have the authority over it, obviously in coordination with your agent and your publisher and all asterisks of whatever your contract affords aside, but it's, it's your book. And screenwriting just doesn't look the same. You don't have the same authority. You are answering to notes from a studio often if it's a feature um, or if it's a TV show. And if the script isn't what they want it to be, they can bring in another writer and you don't have the authority to say no most of the time, at least to my understanding and my experience. And similarly, like the book to feature experience, a big difference is when you sell a book and you get a book deal, nine out of 10 times that book will, it will be a book one day. It may take a really long time. It may take a lot of edits. It might be in a different form than you anticipated it being when you made that book, but it's going to exist as a book one day. I would say it's maybe the opposite on the film and TV side. One out of 10 times the option deal you make actually becomes a feature for a TV show that is available to viewers. And that can be a real head fuck for a lot of authors because it's just a completely different totally. dynamic. It's a completely different relationship to the work. And that can be really, really hard. So that's that's one that I always just like make sure I carve out the pilot process alone. Trying to explain the pilot <laughs> process to an author is tough, tough. There's a lot of yeah. things that, there's a lot of really great art that we don't see because it never made it to screen in the film yeah. and TV world. Totally. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, I'm just nodding along with all of the control stuff because for me, it's control and timing, right? Because yeah. a lot of authors, they're, they're thinking about their publishing career and then they get dangled this little like film TV thing and they're like, oh, look at this sparkly thing. I want to go chase that thing. And you're like, well, I thought we were focusing on a book career, right? And so if you want to do both, it can dilute both or, you know, you can just get away from your goals in publishing. And when you're working in commercial fiction, you know, I work in a lot of commercial and not market fiction, you know, there's a certain schedule or rhythm that we try to create, whether it's book a year, book every two years. And when you dangle mm-hmm. the shiny, you know, book to film, book to TV thing, over there and they're like oh I want to chase that for a bit you know it can just be distracting and also not as tangible sometimes because we're talking about this one to ten ratio it's not actually as tangible in a way that you know that publishing path starts to be a bit more not assumed or expected but like you're on a path right in terms of your Mm -hmm. writing career so I think I talk about yeah the control thing is it that you want control and what are you more focused on in terms of a career because that dictates the next two to three five years of your life essentially so yeah I love all that perspective thank you guys my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
this is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Okay, I want to throw in some questions we had from the group in terms of the Twitter questions that I had come in. So one question I thought was really great was, what are some of the differences in adapting fiction versus nonfiction? I would say in terms of finding the right home, I do think in nonfiction, those authors tend to be even more judicious in terms of finding the right home for their material because it is their, you know, it's a lot of times a memoir and and their real life or something that they feel a great holdover, rightfully so, in in terms of all of the research they've done. And and it's a true story. And so, you know, sometimes that means having multiple calls with the person that you think you want to get into business with. Sometimes it's, you know, a lot of times if, if an author isn't going to adapt their material, there are other roles you can have in terms of the process. Is that being an executive producer? being a consulting producer, being a consultant, being a producer. These these all mean different things. And so I take it upon myself to get the highest role, especially when it's nonfiction. We have an even greater, we have even greater leverage in that situation to make sure that that author has an even stronger voice as they, as you know, compared to fiction. And there's plenty of authors who also are executive producers on their fiction material. But I do think when it comes to nonfiction, making sure that we're also working with producers and writers who have worked in those realms or understand the importance of the story that they are getting to tell. There's an extra layer of of that. And especially when you're dealing with life rights, life rights are tricky. 
And I have seen authors come over from, you know, signing paperwork, maybe that they didn't have representation or they kind of got dangled this shiny thing by someone who got in their inbox and they said yes to something. And, you know, you can be in a really tricky place with those life rights deals and they are very, very specific and the language needs to be perfect because you could potentially kind of lock your story up for for a, a long period of time. And so there is a very very strong attention to detail. Carly knows there is a strong attention to detail when I'm doing fiction deals, but on top of it, nonfiction is just, you've got to be really smart when getting into the contractual language as well. And to have someone on your side that understands what the implications are is is important. And that is someone that can explain to you what the implications are and, and the exclusivity to this portion of your life. And if it's not a memoir, you know, I do think there are stories that still need to be told with the authenticity um, and understanding that you can't you can't kind of completely do a 180 on a, on on nonfiction. The next question I had was about the difference between film and TV. I think it used to be like TV was like the ugly stepsister for a little while. And now TV is like so in the forefront. And I'm sure you've had conversations with authors who were like, I only want film or I only want TV. Could you talk maybe a bit about what that landscape looks like right now? Yeah, it's it's busy. I would say when I started out, 90% of the deals were filmed, just was what, you know, what was happening in the marketplace. And now, I mean, it's definitely not 90% TV, but it's a high, I would say a higher percentage of television. And, and that happened, you know, probably within the last five years. So it has done a very quick switch. The other thing I'd say is most of the time, a film producer is a TV producer and a TV producer is a film producer and and everything in between, between the actors and the directors and the writers. It used to be that if you were a film actor and you were offered a TV thing, it was like, how, how could you even bring this opportunity to me? And it's just the opposite now. And so a lot of times we're going into these processes and saying, yeah, there's a big, big focus on this to be television with this creative element coming on board, but it's possible that it switches to film and vice versa. And so that's another point on that first call with the with the potential co-agent you might be working with to talk through if you really only want this to be a certain adaptation, have a conversation about that because that agent will make sure that that happens. But a lot of the ways that material are, are being adapted, people are taking the film and TV rights. It's very, very common, very standard. It's not always the case, but there are, especially in the animation space, I think now it's it's a bit of the opposite. They're finding that doing an hour, hour and a half film and then moving into television is the best way to kind of grab those viewers and the attention of a younger audience. And so there's a lot of that going on too, where you're getting into animation deals and people are saying, oh, we're going to do this as a TV series. And then they get into the development and suddenly they're writing a film script to start. And so you might be surprised by that. And so I'd say most of the authors are open and excited about both avenues. But if there's one in particular that you really want to see um, at the forefront, making sure that's known, because even when we're making calls into these companies or these creative elements, if it is a very specific adaptation that an author 
is looking for, you know, we need to make sure we're calling the right person within that company. If we're calling a production company, you know, there's a film executive and then there's a TV executive and and we need to make sure that we're calling the, the right person and pitching the material in, in the right way. But television is, I get the question a lot, like, is the bubble going to burst? And I, I don't think so. I mean, it's, I think a lot of us in, in, in quarantine have seen, or at least me, because I do watch everything. I've kind of run out of stuff to watch and that is because of COVID and we're seeing that right now, but that happened. A lot of us are going, oh my gosh, I don't have anything to watch right now. What is going on? And the fact that that is happening in the kind of golden era of TV is wild. That just shows there's so much more room for, for material. And by the way, in quarantine, these studios and these companies did not slow down in adapt and, and, you know, optioning IP. So it's, it's going to keep going and it's very, very busy and it's exciting. Yeah. All those producers who, all those producers who sometimes take a long time to read, nothing to do but read for a year. (laughs) So all of a sudden that's what took up their time. Yeah. We had their full attention. Exactly. So good. (laughs) Finally. finally. Especially those actors. They're usually on set. Yeah. Those, the Mm. act, the actor reads that we've been getting is, has been entertaining. I've noticed that too. I think this also, the question also dovetails back to that original conversation around like the increase in IP being bought in that in the mid aughts with the rise of like the first stage of golden television and television getting the respect that I personally think think it's always deserved but culturally that growing all of a sudden there was this form that we hadn't really been optioning IP for in the past Mm -hmm. prior to prestige television coming into it you know blossoming and coming into itself in the mid aughts like there was very little IP that was turned into television it was primarily for feature like Addison was saying and I think all of a sudden studios got wise to the fact that there were also all of these books that never were optioned, all of this IP that could be converted into content fairly easily and quickly, but that weren't right for a feature form, that were open-ended or that were was a series that actually now that television is an option and is a respected option and is being made by bigger studios, there was this sort of really exciting, expansive look at what you can do with IP. Mm-hmm. And sort of, I think in the last 10 years, but really five years, comes the increase in streaming services, right? So all of a sudden the demand for content period has increased and buying up IP means those streaming services can skip some of those developmental steps. They have what the story is. They know what the shape of it is, if it's going to be a feature, if it's going to be a TV show and they can assign a writer to it and get going or have the the author adapt it themselves. So I think that's slowing down a little less with COVID. It kicked back up with COVID, but I think that kind of like buying free broadly is slowing down a little bit, but we Mm -hmm. saw that as well, where as Netflix increased the amount of original material it was making, as Hulu came on, as Amazon came on, as all of these streamers like are born out of thin air, which is what it feels like lately, they they need to fill up a library in order to warrant you spending X amount of dollars on them a month. And the best way to do that for, or maybe best is qualitatively uh, incorrect, but one way to do that is to start co- collecting IP and getting that generated into content as quickly as possible. 
And also actors being able to sink their teeth into yes. these like miniseries, right? Where they don't have to create a char- character co- to contain within an hour and a half. Like, yeah. you know, they get to build out a character over these miniseries, like shows their chops as actors and builds their own brands, which is, I think, also like the brandification of everything. Yeah, I think that's like the secondary wave of golden age television when it comes to IP is like the first wave was like, oh my gosh, all of these books we never optioned or all these books that are coming out that could sustain a series that snatched them up. And then what the model is that we're in right now is these like mini series that you can bring really incredible talent who otherwise can't sign up for a seven season show, which is what a lot of contracts are for, right? Yeah. Anyway, just that like now we're in the moment of, oh, you know, mini series, what we once called mini series, now we call, you know, uh, one season, what have you, are also incredibly viable and can bring talent that you couldn't get to sign up for an extended series. So then there's this whole other pool of IP that was not right for feature and not right for extended series, but would be great to have 10 episodes to get through. I love that. Okay, perfect. So um, another question that I had from somebody on Twitter, are multi-POV novels more or less likely to make the transition to be optioned? Have you seen multi-POVs as a trend? I wouldn't say that it's a trend or not a trend. It just depends on the material. I think that there's a really fantastic way to adapt, you know, IP from different perspectives and being able to dive in through kind of a cast of ensemble characters. But it it depends. I don't think there's like a, a clear yes or no on multiple POVs. I think it depends on the setting. It depends on what they're going through. I think that's more important than necessarily feeling like it has to be one particular character. I think there's some really fantastic, quieter books that take one perspective and have become really fantastic movies and TV shows and they're a really great you know multi-character ensemble films and 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 tv shows that have become really wildly successful so I think it's more about what those characters are going through and and what their journey is you know uh, multi-generational different time periods that can be a little bit tougher if we're jumping through a lot of different time periods but even that I just sold you know I just sold that <laughs> a few weeks ago so it's about finding the right person that can see that and and making it happen it's absolutely possible I think it's just about about the story yeah that sums it up perfectly I think that's one of those translation beats for an author to think about is like what what drives a, a film or what drives a television show is going to be different maybe than what drives a novel where voice in a novel might be number one on the list of important things that make that novel work but voice doesn't, doesn't look the same in a film right the voice in the film is your cinematographer kind of you're, the voice of the film is the director in some ways it's the words that are coming out of these characters mouths but you're not it, it's again it's just not a one-for-one translations in my mind I'm like is every film not a multi-POV piece of art I guess not like the one where Robert Redford's on a boat in the ocean alone that's singular <laughs> but otherwise you know you're either you're closer or further from the main character but it's not it's just not a one-for-one question Awesome. Well, I appreciate everyone's expertise so much. So I'm going to just end with one last question and let everybody get back to their very, very, very busy jobs. So my last question for Addison is, one of my favorite things about you is how professional you are, how connected you are, but most importantly, how calm you are, whether it's a five, six or seven figure deal. How have you learned to be so (laughs) even keel in this business, even the roller coaster that it is? I mean, I have to say, I do think that's my but it's a bit of my personality. I think that uh, uh, I'm very thankful to be busy and 
you know, I'm starting at 8am and ending at 10pm and it doesn't stop. And I thrive in that thing, thankfully. And so, you know, I think it's important to keep calm and we're here to be the, to be the bad guys for our clients. We're here to be the calm people for our clients. We're here to kind of make sure that everything goes smoothly. And I think, you know, there are those agents that you see on, on screen, on entourage, and those people are real, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to kind of keep our head on straight on behalf of our clients. And so I love a, I love a competitive, complicated, heated situation because I, I like to kind of jump in and, and be chill in those situations and bring some, you know, some clarity to the mayhem that is film and TV. There's a lot of things we have to juggle and a lot of hats that we have to wear. I'm a TV script agent one, one minute and I'm an, an author's agent and I'm a, you know, talent agent. And I, you know, we're, we're talking to studios and then talking to an author and talking to a publishing agent. And those, those conversations are very different. I think it's a mix of the training and learning from all of the spectacular people that have come before me and watching them juggle everything that's that's brought to us on a day-to-day basis, from the deal-making to being creative and thinking about material and, and then going into a quiet corner and, and enjoying a piece of material um, and turning off our emails and throwing my phone on the other side of the room so that I can enjoy said book in, in some peace and quiet. So, you know, it's an inherent part of the job, but I also... So, you know, there's a bit of a type A quality that comes along with this job. And if I didn't stay cool, calm and collected, I think I would be, I'd be a much larger ball of stress. But I just, I think at the end of the day, it's important to just enjoy it and love it and feel like you're being a very, very strong and good and professional advocate for your clients. Because if you're out there running around you know, doing anything different, then it's not, it's not a good look. It's not a good look for, for the client, for the, for the co-publishing agents we're working with. And that's one of my favorite parts of the job. That's why we get along so well. (laughs) I try to be cool, calm, like what would Addison do? Addison would be very cool, calm, All right. And Dana, my last question for you. I think one of the interesting things about your um, kind of entry to publishing is not a lot of people have that kind of on the ground film experience, you know, coming into publishing. What are some of the strengths of having that kind of film TV background and being a literary agent? Yeah, it's a good question. For me personally, it's wrapped up in the fact that I do still kind of keep engaged in that world and, and sort of watch trends and know the news that is happening. So I find that the strength it gives me in the work as a literary agent is that I don't get the same starry-eyedness that an author understandably has and that I think some people in publishing get as well again understandably if if the movie if Hollywood comes to you right like it is it is very cool but having worked in it I I think I can approach all of the things that Addison was talking about the negotiations competitive situations complex deals with the same level-headedness that I can on the book side and that's not to say that other agents can't do that either I just think that the experience of already working in that industry kind of like brings me down a couple of notches as far as knowing that it's just a job as well on that on that side too even if you are negotiating with movie stars and from an like an intel perspective 
because I find that sometimes people in the film and TV world bank on an author not knowing the nuances of the film of the film and TV world because it is very nuanced in the same way that publishing is. There, it's very specific, and so you know, if I'm speaking, if we're speaking with a producer or a co-agent or someone who is trying to woo the author, their inclination may be to just name drop all of the people they have connections with, whether or not it's a right fit for the author of this project, because it can, you know, feed in feed into that starry-eyedness again, understandably. And I'm able to, you know, recognize a director's name and immediately be like, that's kind of a disingenuous suggestion for this project, because that I know that director is wrapped up with an exclusivity deal at X Studio, and so they would not be buying this for Y Studio. Or I know they have a first look deal with this place, and therefore, and they're on contract for the next four years, so they would not be reading, you know, like that, those kind of just small nuances of the way the business works and an institutional knowledge of that side of the fence that others may may not have naturally because I'm just a film and TV historian nerd. So <laughs> how I spend my spare time is is loading my brain up with that information. Amazing, amazing. And I will ask one last question, but it's very quick. Um, what are you guys watching right now? I'm watching Hacks and I'm very into Hacks. Have you guys watched that yet? Not yet, but it's on my list. I'm actually going to open. I have a long notepad of like all the things I want to watch, but I'm very excited to watch it's Hacks. very good Addison have you been watching Hacks what are you watching I just literally last night was texting my friend saying put Hacks on your list because it's on my list and I have not yet I have not mm-hmm. yet uh, turned to it I am watching Panic right now which is a, an adaptation on Amazon and it's kind of a YA it's like a YA hunger game set in high school in a way but but a lot more grounded it's it's really well done Lauren Oliver is the author of that series and the writer a tv adaptation hey. there you go nice. uh full circle to this conversation <laughs> writing that one down and yeah she she wrote i think she wrote all of the episodes uh, at least sure. so cool. far she's written all the episodes i've been i've uh, watched so that has been a fun one yeah i've been watching i'm very excited for hacks because it's mm-hmm. co-created by jen stasky who comes from like the mm-hmm. good place world and she's I just haven't gotten to it yet um i've been watching the second season of mythic quest which is just a real delight of a show it's on apple tv it's written by rob McElwain, who is one of the co-creators of um it's always sunny in philadelphia and also so it's co-show run by him as well as megan gantz who was a writer community for a long time that's where she cut her teeth and she's done many other things since she's incredibly talented um and it's basically a workplace comedy but set at a like a fantasy video game i don't remember i don't know the difference between magic the gathering and world of warcraft and all of those things but i think it's based on wow maybe cut that just because that's embarrassing but based (laughs) based on a fantasy if data's wrong cut that (laughs) but it's it's really it's really delightful. It's kind of got like Silicon Valley meets community energy. Really lovely, wacky, really great performances. And then it's Top Chef season, baby. We're halfway through Top <laughs> Chef season, and I don't watch a lot of reality television, but I absolutely love Top Chef. Uh, so that's been my like that's my been my weekday uh, appointment viewing for for this current moment. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's all I had prepared for you guys. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time Thanks and your expertise and your wisdom that's going to be this was fun and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and i'll do my best to get them answered for you i hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes
great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.